are we done with Farinata? How could we ever be done with Farinata? No, of course not. But we are moving on. Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk, as you probably well know, through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are actually moving on past Farinata momentarily, but let me explain why in a minute. We're in Canto 10 of Inferno. We're at line 121B. We stopped in the last episode just as Farinata de Uberti slipped back into his tomb, and we're going to go on and cross over the start of the next canto and go all the way through canto 11, line 15. So the end of canto 10 and into the opening bits of canto 11. Before we get started, and before I even get to the passage, I want to say more about Ferenata. I tried, oh, so much, to figure out a way to describe the relationship with Dante, the Pilgrim, and Ferenata, and I couldn't really come up with it because I don't think, and this is the mistake, I don't think that the whole turn of the relationship is somehow, oh, I don't know, that you find, as I kept trying to get away from, the sympathy in your arch enemy's eyes. That is, that you find that Hitler is human all along. No, 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 no. No, there's no moral basis here for that kind of movement. I even find that kind of movement suspect (laughs) anyway when you're faced with great moral evil. That's not what it is. And I kept trying to think, what is this? What is this? It's finding common ground with someone and sympathy, but you're on the opposite side. And I finally hit on it. Of course, I know. Let's say you were married to someone for a long time. Let's say it was a guy and you loved him a lot. And then all of a sudden, this guy left you for someone else. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. Let's say, okay, I'm going to do it as if it's a straight marriage. This guy left his wife for another woman. And you know that he loves her and she loves him. And that's the problem. You still love him. And she loves him. So time goes by and he dies. And you meet her at his funeral, his second wife. And something happens You both know that you loved him. Or, I don't know, we can switch this around. It's a woman and two guys meet in a funeral. Or it's a guy and two other guys meet in a funeral. It doesn't matter. The point is that the first and the second meet at the funeral. And while you can never be friends, you do know that deep inside, you both loved this person who is now dead. And so you share a kind of common ground You share something together, and at the end of the day, you're both torqued, twisted, hurt by your undying love for this person. That's what the relationship with Ferenata and Dante the Pilgrim is like. So having said that, let's move on to Canto 10, lines 121b, to Canto 11, line 15. I willed my steps over to the ancient poet rehashing those words that had seemed to be filled with harm for me, at which he started out. And then as we were going along, he said to me, Why are you so lost? And I gave him the full satisfaction of what he'd asked. May your memory preserve what you've heard against you, the wise one implored, and listen to what I've got to say. Then he raised his finger. When you will be in front of the sweet dazzle of the woman whose beautiful eyes see everything, you will fully comprehend the journey of your life. With that, he footed off to the left, 
We left the wall and hiked toward the middle on a path that led straight down into a valley whose stench turned our stomachs even up there. As we got to the edge of a high embankment that had been made by a circle of broken rocks, we looked down on an even crueler mob scene. Here, because of the horrible stench of putrefaction that was belched up from the deep abyss, we pulled back a bit and took cover under the lid of a monumental tomb on which I saw some writing that said, I hold on to Pope Anastasius, the one who Fontanus seduced from the straight way. Our descent has to be postponed a bit so that our senses get used to the foul smell. Only then we can forget about it for a bit. So spoke my master, and I said to him, Find a compensation so that the time won't be lost. And he, You see that I'm already thinking about it. And that's where we're going to stop, as Virgil starts to find the compensation for their having to stop to get used to the horrible smell that comes out of the deep pits of hell. This is a tough passage. It's got three wow moments in it, and then it's got a few other smaller things. So let's just take them as it comes, the three big wow moments, and it starts off right at the top. I willed my steps over to the ancient poet. This seems in the text to take some effort. There seems to be not just I moved over to the poet or I walked over to the poet. No, there seems to be this volitional intention in the language of the text, and it takes some effort to walk away from the scene of Ferenata and Cavalcante. The pilgrim can't quite get there on his own without making a willed move. Remember, Virgil has been signaling him from a ways away to come on, let's go, let's go, to move on. This is the first time our pilgrim has disobeyed Virgil. He, he stuck around for one more question. Now, it's not the heart of the passage. Who else is in that tomb with you, Farinata? And we find out Frederick II and all the, all the other thousands that are down in there. Okay, fine, good enough. It's not the heart of the passage, and yet... Our pilgrim's not paying attention to Virgil. Virgil's motioning. Come on, let's go, let's go. And the pilgrim still wants one more bit. So there's clearly here, I willed my steps over to the ancient poet. There is something that is holding our pilgrim to Farinata and to Cavalcante. What? Let's look down in the passage. Remember, as they start to move on, what does Virgil say? He says, why are you so lost? He uses that word, smarito. Remember the opening of the poem, Na mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi retrovai per un selva oscura che la darita via era smarita. Lost. Why are you so lost? And that word recurs right here, smarito, smarita, smarito, but still it recurs, calling us back to those opening lines of the entire poem. And later in this very passage, remember the writing on the tomb that I just read. It says, I hold on to Pope Anastasius. We're going to come back to who this is and all that stuff. The one who Fontanus seduced from the straight way, la via trita. It's very close in wording to the opening three lines. So we have two references. The straight way was lost. 
right sitting inside this passage at the back of the heretics. There is something here that is tying us to the loss in the first canto. We can speculate. Is it factionalism? Is it tribalism? Is it the war in Florence? Is that why the poet is lost at the opening of the poem? I mean, the poet is in exile. But furthermore, is the poet himself somehow lost over Florentine factionalism? Or if the poet, as some commentators say, started the poem before he was exiled, was he already lost in Florentine factionalism even before his exile? Maybe, I mean, it's all speculation at this point, but it's curious that resonances from the opening lines of the entire comedy in the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood for the straightway was lost. We find those references straightway lost in this, the end of the passages amongst the sixth circle and the heretics. And notice one more thing while we're sitting right here on I willed my steps over. Notice when Virgil picks up and says, you know, may your memory preserve what you've heard against you um, and listen to what I have to say. And then notice he raises his finger at our pilgrim as if to make a point, right? Raising his finger to make a point. But Robert Durling has pointed out that this entire canto is directed by Virgil's hands. Virgil's the one who's pushing our pilgrim toward Farinata early on, pushing him with his hands. And here toward the end, he's raising a finger at our pilgrim. So Virgil's hands have been at the beginning and the ending of this episode with Farinata. Surely that's a tying device, a a linking device, some way in which we can see, again, Virgil at the beginning and Virgil at the end of the passage, somehow we know this passage is contained, that Ferenata is contained. How is it contained? Maybe this is the answer, finally. Ferenata looks like the most important figure amongst the heretics. But as I argued last time, based on the chiasmus structure, Maybe Cavalcante is the most important character. And because of that, maybe that is the root of heresy. Being distracted by less important things or being distracted by your own personal issues, as in Ferranata, instead of looking for what is at the core, that is your humanness. Where is my son? Maybe that's the tie with the whole passage. Maybe Ferranata looks big and imposing. I certainly think he is. But really, he's a distraction from the center. Certainly, Ferenata thinks that Cavalcante, the man who rises up on his knees beside him in the tomb and says, where is my son? Certainly, Ferenata thinks Cavalcante is the distraction. But maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Ferenata is the distraction from Cavalcante over and over again in this passage. And remember, I told you, it's a big chiasmus all of this passage. Remember last time in the last episode, I explained this and the way we go down one side and up the other, <laughs> not an X, but it's a V. But anyway, the Greek letter Chi, the X, and it's all a big chiasmus structure. Remember this? So the top of the chiasmus on the other side is fear and um, confession. You know, Virgil says, uh, you know, it's Farinata, Dante's afraid, and Dante's holding back from R- Virgil. Now we come back to the other side of this, and you'll notice the other top of the V, or the chiasmus, the X, the other top is that he says, why are you so lost? And the pilgrim says, I gave him the full satisfaction of what he'd asked, holding nothing back. So the 
top on the other side of the chiasmus is confession, is telling it all, is saying everything and holding nothing back. Is that really the crux of the episode? Because in the end, Cavalcante and Ferranata do not make confessions. They do not tell it all. They have their own agendas and their own issues that seem just absolutely thick throughout the sequence. They do not make a heartfelt confession, except for where is my son, but it's nothing about Cavalcante's guilt. There's nothing in which he himself owns up to what he's done or expresses even his own pain about the loss of his son because he says, where is my son? Which is, as I said, a very heartfelt question, but there's no, I feel pain, I hurt. There's no I statement there out of Cavalcante before he falls back in his tomb. So maybe this confession, I held nothing back from Virgil, is how we come out of that whole sequence. It's as if it's redemptive, not not in a lighthearted sense of the word redemptive, but as if the pilgrim has learned something about telling the truth. That's that whole bit out of I willed my first steps all the way through references to the first bits of the poem in Canto 1, all the way through Virgil's hands and Chiasmus' structure. So let me go back and start the passage one more time and get to the point where we're going to come to our second point. I willed my steps over to the ancient poet, rehashing those words that had seemed to be filled with harm for me. Clearly he's remembering Ferranata's call to exile. Unless you think, where is my son and why is he not with you, are actually the words filled with harm. Every single commentator thinks that the words that seem filled with harm are the words about his own exile. You could argue, and you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't get an F in my class if you argued that the words that seem so filled with harm are, where is my son? Virgil starts out, then as we were going along, he said to me, why are you so lost, smartito? I gave him the full satisfaction of what he'd asked for. And then Virgil says, may your memory preserve what you've heard against you. So we know it's something against the pilgrim, which is why it seems like the threat of exile, but maybe not. Maybe it's the implied threat of guilt in Cavalcante. And listen to what I have to say. And then he raised his finger. And now here's the second part we want to get to. When you, fi- when you will finally be in front of the sweet dazzle of the woman whose beautiful eyes see everything, you will fully comprehend the journey of your life. Okay, we want to stop and just talk about this for a second. Notice that this lady, we're going to say it is in a minute, right? But this lady is in direct contrast with Farinata's reference to the lady who reigns in hell. Remember, Farinata says, there's before 50 times the lady's face shines in hell. And I we talked about the moon and Persephone and all that stuff. So Farinata has brought up a woman who reigns in hell. And then here at the end of the canto, Virgil brings up another woman, the woman whose beautiful eyes see everything. That's our first bit, that there is a contrast between Ferdinand's reference to a female figure and Virgil's here at the end of it. Okay, the second bit, this is a promise that will never be fulfilled in comedy. When you find, when you will finally be in front of the sweet dazzle of the woman whose beautiful eyes see everything, you will fully comprehend the journey of your life. The word there is know, you will fully know the journey of your life, but I think it carries more the English concept of comprehend. You will encompass, you will know it fully, the the journey of your life. You'll understand it. You'll, You'll get why it is that it is. Okay, great. That's a beautiful promise. It never happens. Beatrice will appear in the poem. 
Betsy Chu will become a major character ultimately in the back third of the poem. Well, more than the back third, maybe the back the back forty percent of the poem. Betsy Chu will become a major character in the poem. Don't worry, it's coming. And yet, well, this promise is never done. It's going to get repeated. This kind of promise the, about this the sweet dazzle of the eyes and someone who will make your life make sense. It's going to get repeated in Inferno fifteen. But it's never going to be fulfilled. In fact, our pilgrim is going to learn the details of his life from his own ancestor, Cacciaguida, in Paradiso 17. So this bit that someone's going to explain the journey of your life to you, some woman is going to, it never happens. In fact, where it's going to happen is with his ancestor, Cacciaguida, and he, this ancestor, will explain kind of the arc the journey of Dante's life. Let's just step back and look at this one more time. This is always interpreted as a reference to Beatrice. Why? Because in Inferno, Canto 2, when Virgil tells about his time with Beatrice, Virgil focuses on Beatrice's eyes. Go back to line 55 and 116 of Canto 2. And since Virgil focuses on Beatrice's eyes, that he would bring up eyes here, Okay, it must be Beatrice, right? Are you sure? If you just came on these lines about someone in a, in a medieval poem, about someone who's going to eventually get in front of a woman whose beautiful eyes see everything, and that this woman will explain to you the journey of your life, would Beatrice be the first thing that leaps to your mind? No, it would not. The Virgin Mary would be the first thing that leaps to your mind. Or maybe a saint like Saint Lucy would be the first thing that leaps to your mind. But Beatrice? No, no, no. Whose beautiful eyes see everything? See everything? That seems to have a little bit of divinity sitting behind it or some kind of comprehensibility about her, her, her efforts to see things. I know. It is. It is Beatrice. It has to be Beatrice and in, in this reference here. And yet, it verges right up onto heresy. It verges right up onto extreme theological difficulty. Beatrice cannot take the place of the Virgin or even of the major saints. So how can her eyes see everything? And how does she have the ability to help our pilgrim comprehend the journey of his life? Maybe Dante did intend this to be a reference to Beatrice. And then later on, with Cacciaguida, he realized the blasphemy inherent in this promise. That could be it. And so the poem changes. After all, we are looking at a poem in process. We are not looking at Toni Morrison's Beloved or <laughs> Katsuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, heavily rewritten novels that are rewritten and rewritten in a modern style until you get a final product. What we're looking at in comedy is a poem in process all the way through, probably up until, I would argue, until about the 20th canto of Paradiso. Maybe there's a promise here that can't be fulfilled, that Dante in the end becomes a better poet and knows that this is impossible to give Beatrice this much power. And so that's why this promise is never fulfilled. 
Let's pass on. With that, he footed to the left. Notice turning to the left. Remember, they turned to the right to get to the heretics, but now they're back going the way they always do. They're going to the left. We left the wall, hiked down toward the middle on a path that led straight down into a valley whose stench turned our stomachs even up there. And this is our first real understanding of the bottom three circles of hell, that they are awful horrible there are a garbage pit putrefaction rotting corpses it's an awful place and the language of the poem is about to coarsen to match it as we got now we're in canto 11 we just crossed over the edge of the cantos as we got to the edge of the high embankment that had been made by a circle of park we looked down on an even cooler mob scene the word here is stripa and hollander points out that this word is used to indicate a jumble of people and animals huddled together in the hold of a ship. We might say steerage, as if we're looking down at this thick steerage with humans and animals all jammed together inside of it. We look down on an even crueler bottom hold of a ship. Here, because of the horrible stench of putrefaction that was belched up from the deep abyss, we pulled back a bit and took cover under a lid. I should just let you know that it's still unclear how these lids are related to their tombs. Are they floating over them? Are they standing beside them? The language is unclear here. So I'm just going to tell you that it's never really solved the relationship between the lid and the tomb. My interpretation and, and translation here to cover under the lid of a monumental tomb is as much interpretive as it is anything. It's just a problem in the text that the lids and the tombs are not exactly visualized. If Dante were in my writing class, I'd send him back home and tell him he's got to make this better visualized. But okay, he's not. So <laughs> passing on of Monumental Tomb, on which I saw some writing. Second piece of writing in Inferno. Second and last piece of writing in Inferno. Let's stop here and look at it. On the tomb is this writing that says, I hold on to Pope Anastasius, the one who Fontanus seduced from the straightway. This is it. This is a tough passage. I already mentioned the straightway La Via Dritta up earlier in this episode of the podcast, but this is a tough bit here. Pope Anastasius means the resurrected one, Anastasio. It, it literally means Pope the resurrected one. And of course, that's a bit of a play because we have been amongst those who deny the resurrection and we've had this kind of torqued and twisted resurrection of Farinata and even Cavalcante out of the tomb. And Fontanus or Fontan, as Dante says it, means basically a little light, the little light. Who are these people? Hard to know. Dante may be confusing Pope Anastasius II, who was Pope from 496 to 498, common era, with Emperor Anastasius I, who was the emperor from 491 to 518. He may be making that confusion. According to Isidora of Seville in his Etymologies, Fontanus was a bishop who adopted the Ebionite heresy. That is a heresy that claimed that Jesus was born of a natural union between Joseph and Mary. There's some problems there too, but it's, it's basically this heresy, the Ebionite heresy, is that there was no um, uh, supernatural incarnation or impregnating of Mary, but rather Joseph and Mary made a baby the way everybody makes a baby, and then 
the 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 spirit of God was infused into this fetus. That's the basic the basis of the Ebionite heresy. And the church, of course, was much opposed to this because the virgin is the virgin throughout all eternity and is always a virgin. So the church is very opposed to this. And if we, if Isidore of Seville in the etymologies is Dante's source, this may be it. But it's the the grammar here is crabbed. It's bad. I should tell you that the passage doesn't translate well. The writing says, "I hold on to Pope Anastasius," and then the next phrase is is torqued. It it, it can either say the one who Fontanus seduced from the straightway, or the one who seduced. Fontanus from the straight way. It's unclear who's the subject and who's the object of the verbs. I think this bit of writing is twisted and difficult. And here's what I actually think about it. There's been so much commentary about who this is and who these people are and what kind of heresy is going on here. And maybe a heresy, the Ebionite heresy that's going on behind here. There may be other heresies going on behind here. This is kind of what I think. Having come out of the giant conversation with Ferranata and Cavalcante amongst the heretics, a conversation that was really about Florentine factionalism, I feel like our poet here, as we move out of the sixth circle of hell, feels the need to stick a real heretic in here. And so he's stuck in this Pope Anastasius, who maybe doesn't, it's not clear that Fontanus had anything to do with Pope Anastasius. It's not clear that this is actually right, that the text is straight on. It feels kind of ham-handed in its argument. Um, Again, I just wonder if at the end of all of this bit about Florentine factionalism that is rooted in the heretics, if our poet hasn't thought, you know what, I need to put a real heretic down in here, and so has grabbed onto something out of Isidore of Seville's etymologies and stuck it here and not phrased it completely right, and it's a little weird and it's a little off, and commentators fight about this these lines endlessly. It is the second piece of writing in Inferno, remember the first piece is over the gate, the abandon all hope bit. Both pieces of writing occur at gateway moments. The abandon hope is the first descent into hell, and here we're about to make a descent into lower hell. And so we're right on the verge here, in which Virgil has to postpone us. Our descent has to be postponed a bit, Virgil says, so that our sense gets used to the foul smell, and only then can we forget about it for a bit. And so Dante says, hey, you know what? Find a compensation. So the time what we lost, and he says, you know what? I'm already considering it, and now we're ready for Virgil's big explanation. In fact, what we're ready for is the most talky canto of all of Inferno. This sets up the most spoken canto of Inferno. There are 115 lines in Canto 11. 106 of them are spoken, or 92% of the canto is spoken. The next closest runner-up is Canto Two, and the whole recitation of Virgil and Beatrice and Lucy and the Virgin. In that canto, there are 118 spoken lines out of 142 total lines in the canto, or 83% of the canto is spoken. This is the most spoken by percent of all of the cantos of Inferno, and we were about to have Virgil preach us a giant sermon on the nature of hell and how hell is structured. But to get there, you got to come back. 
next time in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Because listen, after we've been through Smarito and La Via Drita and a question of who in the world is Pope Anastasius and how does this relate to the heretics and who's the woman with the beautiful eyes and why does Dante have to will his steps over to the ancient poet? Once we've gotten through all of that, seems like we all need a good break. So Come back next time. Subscribe, like this podcast, give it a rating, drop right down there on the bottom of the Apple menu. You'll see write a review. You can do it right there or go out to my website, markscarpo.com. We can connect there or connect with me on Twitter. Hashtag at Walking with Dante. I'll see you. You see me. And come back because Virgil is about to do the most amazing thing. Virgil is about to become a cartographer on Walking with Dante. <laughs> <laughs>